Welcome to this uvula audio presentation of Stiff Upper Lip Jeeves by P.G. Woodhouse. Volume 3, Chapter 8. It was pretty late when I finished the perusal of my Earl Stanley Gardner, and later when I woke from the light doze into which I had fallen on closing the volume. Tully Towers had long since called it a day, and all was still throughout the house, except for a curious rumbling noise proceeding from my interior. After bending an ear to this for a while, I was able to see what was causing it. I had fed sparsely at the dinner table, with the result that I had become as hungry as damn it. I don't know if you've had the same experience, but a thing I've always found about myself is that it takes very little to put me off my feed. Let the atmosphere at lunch or dinner be what you might call it, and my appetite tends to dwindle. I've often had this happen when breaking bread with my Aunt Agatha, and it had happened again at tonight's meal. What with the strain of constantly catching Pop Bassett's eye, and looking hastily away, and catching Spode's, and looking hastily away, and catching Pop's again, I had done far less than justice to Emerald Stoker's no doubt admirable offerings. You read stories sometimes where someone merely toys with his food or even pushes away his plate untasted. And that substantially was what I had done. So now I had this strange hollow feeling, as if some hidden hand had scooped out my insides with a tablespoon. This imperative demand for sustenance had probably been coming on during my Earl Stanley gardening, but I had been so intent on trying to keep tabs on the murder garden and the substitute garden and the gun which Perry Mason had buried in the shrubbery that I hadn't noticed it. Only now had the pangs of hunger really started to throw their weight around, and more and more clearly as they did, so there rose before my eyes the vision of that steak and kidney pie which was lurking in the kitchen. And it was as though I could hear a soft voice calling to me, Come and get it! It's odd how often that you find that out of evil cometh good, as the expression is. Here's a case in point. I'd always thought of my previous visit to Tutley Towers as a total loss. I saw now that I'd been wrong. It had been an ordeal testing the nervous system to the utmost but there was one thing about it to be placed on the credit side of the ledger. I allude to the fact that it had taught me the way to the kitchen. The route lay down the stairs, through the hall, into the dining room, and through the door at the end of the last named. Beyond the door, I presumed, there was some sort of passage or corridor, and then you were in the steak and kidney pie zone. A simple journey, not to be compared for complexity with some I had taken at night in my time. With the Worcesters, to think is to act, and scarcely more than two minutes later I was on my way. It was dark on the stairs, and just as dark, if not darker, in the hall, but I was making quite satisfactory progress, and was about halfway through the latter, when an unforeseen hitch occurred. I bumped into a human body, the last thing I had expected to encounter on route, and for an instant, well, I won't say that everything went black, because everything was black already, but I was considerably perturbed. My heart did one of those spectacular leaps Nijinsky used to do in the Russian ballet, and I was conscious of a fervent wish that I could have been elsewhere. Elsewhere, however, being just where I wasn't. I had no option but to grapple with this midnight marauder, and when I did so I was glad to find out that he was apparently one who had stunted his growth by smoking as a boy. There was a shrimp-like quality about him which I found most encouraging. It seemed to me that it would be an easy task to throttle him into submission. And I was getting down to it with hearty good will when my hand touched what were plainly spectacles, and at the same moment a stifled, Hey, look out for my glasses, 
told me my diagnosis had been all wrong. This was no thief in the night, but an old crony with whom in boyhood days I had often shared my last bar of milk chocolate. Oh, hello, Gussie. Is that you? I thought you were a burglar. There was a touch of asperity in his voice as he replied, Well, I wasn't. No, I see that now. Pardonable mistake, though you must admit. You nearly gave me heart failure. I, too, was somewhat taken aback. No one more surprised than the undersigned when you suddenly popped up. I thought I had a clear track. Where to? Need you ask? The steak and kidney pie, if you've left any. Yes, there's quite a bit left. Was it good? Delicious. Then I think I'll be getting along. Good night, Gussie. Sorry to have troubled you. Continuing on my way, I must have lost my bearings a little. Shaken, no doubt, by the recent encounter. These get-togethers take their toll. At any rate, to cut a long story S, what happened was that I felt my way along the wall when I collided with what turned out to be a grandfather clock, for the existence of which I had not budgeted, and it toppled over with a sound like the delivery of several tons of coal through the roof of a conservatory. Glass crashed, pulleys and things parted from their moorings, and as I stood trying to separate my heart from my front teeth, in which it had become entangled, the lights flashed on, and there I beheld Sir Watkin Bassett. It was a moment fraught with embarrassment. It's bad enough to be caught by your host prowling about his house after hours, even when said host is a warm admirer and a close personal friend, and I have, I think, made it clear that Pop Bassett was not one of my fans. He could barely stand the sight of me by daylight, and I suppose I looked even worse to him at one in the morning. My feeling of having been slapped between the eyes with a custard pie was deepened by the spectacle of his dressing gown. He was not a big man. You got the impression seeing him that when they were making magistrates, there wasn't enough material left over when they came to him. And for some reason, not easy to explain, it nearly always happens that the smaller the ex-magistrate, the louder the dressing gown. His was a bright purple number with yellow frogs. And I am not deceiving my public when I say that it smote me like a blow rendering me speechless. Not that I would have felt chatty, even if he had been upholstered in something in quiet dark blue. I don't believe you could ever be completely at your ease in the company of someone before whom you stood in the dock saying, Yes, your worship, and no, your worship, and being told by him that you're extremely lucky to get off with a fine and not fourteen days without the option. This is particularly so if you have just smashed a grandfather clock, whose welfare is no doubt very near his heart. At any rate, be that as it may, he was the one to open the conversation, not me. Good God, he said, speaking with every evidence of horror. You. A thing I never know, and probably never will, is what to say when somebody says you to me. A mild oh hello was the best I could do on this occasion, and I felt at the time it wasn't very good. Better, of course, than what ho there, Bassett, but nevertheless not very good. Might I ask what you are doing here at this hour, Mr. Worcester? Well, I might have laughed a jolly laugh and replied upsetting Grandfather Clocks, keeping it light, as it were, if you know what I mean, but something told me it wouldn't go frightfully well. I had what amounted to an inspiration. I'd come down to get a book. I'd finished my old Stanley Gardner, and I couldn't seem to drop off to sleep, so I came to see if I couldn't pick up something from your shelves, and in the dark bumped into the clock. Indeed, he said, putting a wealth of sniffiness into the word. 
The thing about this undersized little son of a bachelor I ought to have mentioned earlier is that during his career on the bench, he was one of those unpleasant, sarcastic magistrates who get themselves so disliked by the criminal classes. You know the type. Their remarks are generally printed in the evening papers with the word laughter after them in brackets. And they count the day lost when they don't make some unfortunate pickpocket or some wretched drunk and disorderly feel like a piece of cheese. I know that on the occasion when we stood face to face in Bosher Street Police Court, he convulsed the audience with three solid yaks at my expense in the first two minutes. Indeed, he said. Might I inquire why you were conducting your literary researches in the dark? It would surely have been well within the scope of even your limited abilities to press the light switch. He had me there, of course. The best I could say was that I hadn't thought of it, and he sniffed a nasty sniff, as much as to suggest I was just the sort of dead-from-the-neck-up dumb brick who wouldn't have thought of it. He then turned to the subject of the clock, one which I would willingly have left unventilated. He said he had always valued it highly, it being more or less the apple of his eye. My father bought it years ago. He took it everywhere with him. Here again I might have lightened things by asking him if his parent wouldn't have found it simpler to have worn a wristwatch, but I felt once more that he was not in the mood. My father was in the diplomatic service and was constantly transferred from one post to another. He was never parted from that clock. It accompanied him in perfect safety from Rome to Vienna, from Vienna to Paris, from Paris to Washington, Washington to Lisbon. One would have said it was indestructible, but it had still to pass the supreme test of encountering Mr. Worcester, and that was too much for it. It did not occur to Mr. Worcester, one cannot think of everything, that light may be obtained by pressing a light switch, so he... Here he broke off not so much because he had finished what he had to say, as because at this point in the conversation I sprang onto the top of a large chest which stood some six or seven feet distant from the spot where we were chewing the fat. I may have touched the ground once while in transit, but not more than once, and that once not willingly. A cat on hot bricks could not have moved with greater nippiness. My motives in doing so were founded on a solid basis, to the later stages of his observations on the clock, I had gradually become aware of a curious sound, as if someone in the vicinity was gargling mouthwash, and looking about me I found myself gazing into the eyes of the dog Bartholomew, which were fixed on me with the sinister intentness which is characteristic of his breed of animal. Aberdeen Terriers, possibly owing to their heavy eyebrows, always seem to look at you as if they were in the pulpit of the church of some particularly strict Scottish sect, and you were a parishioner of dubious reputation sitting in the front row of the stalls. Not that I noticed his eyes very much, my attention being riveted to his teeth. He had an excellent set and was bearing them at me, and all I had ever heard of his tendency to bite first and ask questions later passed through my mind in a flash. Hence the leap for life. The Worcesters are courageous, but they do not take chances. Pop Bassett was plainly nonplussed, and it was only when his gaze, too, fell upon Bartholomew that he abandoned what must have been his original theory, that Bertram had cracked under the strain and would do well to lose no time in seeing a good mental specialist. He eyed Bartholomew coldly and addressed him as if he had been up before him in the police court. Go away, sir. Lie down. Go away. He said rasping, if that's the word. 
Well, I could have told him that you can't talk to an Aberdeen Terrier in that tone of voice, for, except perhaps for Doberman Pinchers, there's no breed of dog quicker to take offence. Really, the way my niece allows this infernal animal to roam at large about the... House, I suppose, was what he was about to say, but the word remained unspoken. It was a moment for rapid action, not for speech. The gargling noise had increased in volume, and Bartholomew was flexing his muscles and getting under way. He moved, he stirred, he seemed to feel the rush of life along his keel, as the fellow said, and Pop Bassett, with a lightsomeness of which I would not have suspected him, took himself the wings of a dove and floated down beside me on the chest. Whether he clipped a second or two off my time I cannot say, but I rather think he did. This is intolerable, he said, as I moved courteously to make room for him, and I could see the thing from his point of view. All he asked from life, now that he had made his pile, was to be far away as possible from Bertram Worcester. And here he was, cheek to jowl, as you might say, on a rather uncomfortable chest with him. A certain peevishness was inevitable. Not too good, I agreed, unquestionably open to criticism, that animal's behaviour. He must be off his head. He knows me perfectly well. He sees me every day. Ah, I said, putting my finger on the weak spot in his argument. But I don't suppose he's ever seen you in that dressing gown. Well, I'd been too outspoken. He let me see at once that he had taken umbrage. What's wrong with my dressing gown? He demanded hotly. A bit on the bright side, don't you think? No, I do not. Well, that's how it would strike a high-strung dog, though. I paused here to chuckle softly, and he'd asked what the devil I was giggling about. And I put him abreast. I was merely thinking I wish we could strike the high-strung dog. The trouble on these occasions is that one is always weaponless. It was the same some years ago, when an angry swan chased self and friend onto the roof of a sort of boathouse building at my Aunt Agatha's place in Hertfordshire. Nothing would have pleased us better than to bung bricks at the bird or slosh him with a boat hook. But we had no bricks and were short of boat hooks. We had to wait till Jeeves came along, which he eventually did in answer to our cries. It would have thrilled you to have seen Jeeves on that occasion. He advanced dauntlessly and... Mr. Worcester. Speaking. Kindly spare me your reminiscences. I was merely saying that... Well, don't. Silence fell. On my part, a wounded silence, for all I'd tried to do was take his mind off things with entertaining chit-chat. I moved an inch or two away from him in a marked manner. The Worcesters do not force their conversations on the unwilling. All this time, Bartholomew had been trying to join us, making a series of energetic springs. Fortunately, Providence, in its infinite wisdom, had given Scotty's short legs, and though full of the will to win, he could accomplish nothing constructive. However much an Aberdeen Terrier may bear mid snow and ice a banner with the strange device Excelsior, he nearly always has to be content with dirty looks and the sharp, passionate bark. Some minutes later, my fellow rooster came out of the silence. No doubt the haughtiness of my manner had intimidated him, for there was a mildness in his voice which had not been there before. Mr. Worcester. I turned coldly. Were you addressing me, Bassett? There must be something we can do. You might find the animal five pounds. We cannot stay here all night. Why not? What's to stop us? This held him. He relapsed into silence once more. 
and we were sitting there like a couple of Trappist monks when a voice said, Well, for heaven's sake. And I perceived that Stiffy was with us. Not surprising, of course, that she should have turned up sooner or later. If Scotty's come, I ought to have said to myself, Can Stiffy be far behind? Chapter 9 Considering that so substantial a part of her waking hours is devoted to thrusting innocent bystanders into the soup, Stiffy is far prettier than she has any right to be. She's on the small side. Petite, I believe, is a technical term. And I've always felt that when she and Stinker walk up the aisle together, if they ever do, their disparity in height should be good enough for a laugh or two from the ringside pews. The thought has occurred to me more than once that the correct response for Stinker to make when asked by the MC if he's prepared to take this Stephanie to be his wedded wife would be, Why, certainly, what there is of her. What on earth do you two think you're doing? She inquired, not unnaturally surprised to see her uncle and an old friend in our current position. And why have you been upsetting the furniture? That was me, I said. I bumped into the grandfather clock. I'm as bad as Stinker, aren't I, bumping into things? Ha-ha! Less of the ha-ha. She reposted warmly. And don't mention yourself in the same breath as my herald. Well, that does not explain why you're sitting up there like a couple of buzzards on a treetop. Pop Bassett intervened, speaking at his sniffiest. Her comparison of him to a buzzard, though perfectly accurate, seemed to have piqued him. We were savagely attacked by your dog. Not so much attacked as given nasty looks, I said. We didn't vouchsafe him time to attack us, deeming it best to get out of his sphere of influence before he could settle down to work. He's been trying to get at us for at least two hours. At least it seems like two hours. She was quick to defend the dumb chum. Well, how can you blame the poor angel? Naturally, he thought you were international spies in the pay of Moscow, prowling about the house at this time of night. I could understand Bertie doing it because he was dropped on the head as a baby, but I'm surprised at you, Uncle Watkin. Why don't you go to bed? I shall be delighted to go to bed, said Pop Bassett stiffly. If you will remove this animal... He is a public menace. He's very high-strung, I put in. We were remarking on it only just now. Oh, he's all right, if you don't go out of your way to stir him up. Get back into your basket, Bartholomew, you bounder, said Stiffy. And such was the magic of her personality that the hound returned on its heel without a word and passed into the night. Pop Bassett climbed down from the chest and directed a fishy, magisterial look at me. Good night, Mr. Worcester. If there is any more of my furniture you wish to break, pray consider yourself at perfect liberty to indulge your peculiar tastes. He said this, and then he too passed into the night. Stiffy looked after him with a thoughtful eye. I don't believe Uncle Watkin likes you, Bertie. I noticed the way he kept staring at you at dinner, as if appalled. Well, I don't wonder your arrival hit him hard. It did me. I've never been so surprised in my life as when you suddenly bobbed up like a corpse rising to the surface of a sheet of water. Harold told me he had pleaded with you to come here, but nothing he said could induce you. What made you change your mind? In my previous sojourn to Totley Towers, circumstances had compelled me to confide in this young prune my position as regarded her cousin Madeline, so I had no hesitation now in giving her the lowdown. 
I learned there was trouble between Madeline and Gussie. Do I've been informed since to her forcing him to follow in the footsteps of the poet Shelley and become a vegetarian, and I felt I might accomplish something as a raisonneur. As a what-to-nor? What? I thought that would be a bit above your head. It's a French expression, meaning I believe, though I would have to check with Jeeves, a calm, kindly man of the world who intervenes when a rift has occurred between two loving hearts and brings them together again. Very essential in the present crisis. You mean that if Madeline hands Gussie the pink slip, she's going to marry you? That, broadly, is the strength of it. And while I admire and respect Madeline, I'm all against the idea of having her smiling face peeping at me over the coffee pot for the rest of my life. So I came here to see what I could do. Well, you couldn't have come here at a better moment. Now that you're here, you can get cracking on that job Harold told you I wanted you to do for me. I saw that the time had come for some prompt in-the-bud nipping. Include me out. I won't touch it. I told you, I know you and your jobs. But this is something quite simple. You could do it on your head, and you'll be bringing sunshine and happiness into the life of a poor slob who can do with a bit of both. Weren't you ever a Boy Scout? Not since early boyhood. Then you've got lots of leeway to make up for in the way of kind deeds. This will be a nice start for you. The facts are as follows. I don't want to hear the facts. So you'd prefer I recalled Bartholomew and told him to go on where he left off? She had what Jeeves had called a talking point. Oh, very well. Tell me all, but briefly, please. Oh, it won't take long, and then you can be off to Betty by. You remember that little black statuette thing on the table at dinner? Oh, yes, the eyesore. Uncle Watkin bought it from a man named Plank. So I gathered. Well, do you know what he paid for it? A thousand quid, didn't you say? No, I didn't. I said it was worth a thousand quid. But he got it out of this poor blighter, Plank, for a fiver. You're kidding! No, I'm not. He paid him five pounds, and he makes no secret of it. When we were at Brinkley, he was showing the thing to Mr. Travers and telling him all about it. How he happened to see it on Plank's mantelpiece and spotted how valuable it was, and told Plank it was worth practically nothing, but he would give him five pounds for it because he knew how hard up he was. He gloated over how clever he had been, and Mr. Travers writhed like an egg whisk. I could believe it. If there's one thing that makes a collector spit blood, it's hearing about another collector getting a bargain. How do you know Plank was hard up? Well, how could he have let the thing go for a fiver if he wasn't? Well, there is something in that. You can't say that Uncle Watkin isn't a dirty dog. I would never dream of saying he isn't, and always has been, the dirtiest of dogs. It bears out what I frequently maintained, that there are no depths to which magistrates won't swoop. I don't wonder you look askance. Your Uncle Watkin stands revealed as a chiseler of the lowest type, but nothing to be done about it, of course. I don't know so much about that. Why, have you tried doing anything? Well, in a sort of way, I arranged that Harold should preach a very strong sermon on Naboth's Vineyard. Not that I suppose you've ever heard of Naboth's Vineyard. I bridled. She had offended my amour propre. I doubt if there's a man in London and the home counties who has the facts relating to Naboth's Vineyard more thoroughly to his fingertips than me. The news may not have reached you, but when I was at school, I once won a prize for scripture knowledge. I'll bet you cheated. 
Not at all. Sheer merit. Did Stinker cooperate? Yes, he thought it was a splendid idea, and went about sucking throat pastilles for a week, so as to be in good voice. The setup was the same as the play in Hamlet, you know, with which to catch the conscience of the king and all that. Yes, I see the strategy all right. How did it work out? It didn't. Harold lives in the cottage of Mrs. Boodle, the postman's wife, where they only have oil lamps, and the sermon was on a table with a lamp on it, and he bumped into the table and upset the lamp, and it burned the sermon, and he didn't have time to write it out again, so he had to dig out something on another topic from the old stockpile. He was terribly disappointed. I pursed my lips and was on the point of saying that of all the web-footed muddlers in existence, H.P. Pinker took the well-known biscuit when it occurred to me that it might possibly hurt her feelings, so I desisted. The last thing I wanted was to wound the child, particularly when I remembered that crack of hers about recalling Bartholomew. So we've got to handle the thing another way, and that's where you come in. I smiled a tolerant smile. I can see where you're headed. You want me to go to your Uncle Watkin and slip a jack under his better self. Play the game, Bassett, you want me to say. Let conscience be your guide, Bassett. Trying to drive it into his nut how wrong it was to put over a fast one on the widow and the orphan. I'm assuming for purposes of argument that Plank is an orphan, though possibly not a widow. But my misguided young shrimp, do you really suppose that Pop Bassett looks on me as a friend and counsellor to whom he is always willing to lend a ready ear? You yourself were stressing only a moment ago how allergic he was to the Worcester charm. It's no good me talking to him. I don't want you to. Then what do you want me to do? I want you to pinch the thing and return it to Mr. Plank, who will then sell it to Mr. Travers at a proper price. The idea of Uncle Watkin only giving him a fiver for it. We can't let him get away with raw work like that. He needs a sharp lesson. I smiled another tolerant smile. The young bull weevil amused me. I was thinking how right I had been in predicting that any job assigned by her to anyone would be unfit for human consumption. Well, really, Stiffy? The quiet rebuke in my voice ought to have bathed her in shame and remorse, but it didn't. She came back at me strongly. I don't know what you are well reeling about. You're always pinching things, aren't you? Policemen's helmets and things like that. I inclined the bean. It was true I had once lived in Arcady. There is, I was obliged to concede, a certain substance in what you say. I admit that in my time I may have removed a lid or two from the upper stories of members of the constabulary. Well, then. But only on Burt Race night, and when the heart was younger than it is of this date. It was an episode of the sort that first brought me and your Uncle Watkin together. But you could take it from me that the hot blood has cooled and I'm a reformed character. My answer to your suggestion is no. No. N. Ruddy O. I said, making it clear to the meanest intelligence. Why don't you pinch the thing yourself? It wouldn't be any good. I couldn't take it to Plank. I'm confined to barracks. Bartholomew bit the butler, and the sins of the Scotia visited upon its owner. I do think you might reconsider, though, Bertie. Not a hope. You're a blighter, Bertie. But a blighter who knows his own mind, it is not to be shaken by argument or plea, however specious. She was silent for a space, and then she gave a little sigh. Oh, dear. She said. And I did hope I wouldn't have to tell Madeline about Gussie. I gave another one of those visible starts of mine. 
I've seldom heard words I like the sound of less. Fraught with sinister significance, they seem to me. Do you know what happened tonight, Bertie? I was roused from sleep about an hour ago. And do you know what roused me? Stealthy footsteps, no less. I crept out of my room, and I saw Gussie sneaking down the stairs. All was darkness, of course, but he had a little torch, and it shone on his spectacles. I followed him, and he went to the kitchen. I peered in, and there was the cook, shoveling cold steak and kidney pie into him, like a stevedore loading up a grain ship. And the thought flashed into my mind that if Madeline heard of this, she would give him the bum's rush before he knew what had hit him. But a girl doesn't give a fellow the bum's rush just because she's told him to stick to sprouts and spinach and she hears he's been wading into the steak and kidney pie. I said trying to reassure myself, but not getting within several yards of it. Oh, but I bet Madeline would. And so thinking it over did I. You can't judge goose like Madeline Bassett by ordinary standards. What the normal popsy would do and what she would do in any given circumstances were two distinct and separate things. I'd forgotten the time when she had severed relations with Gussie purely because, through no fault of his own, he got stinko when about to present the prizes at Market Snosbury Grammar School. You know how high her ideals are. Yes, sir, if someone were to drop an incautious word to her about tonight's orgy, those wedding bells would not ring out. Gussie would be at liberty and she would start looking about her for someone else to fill that vacant spot. I really think you'll have to reconsider that decision of yours, Bertie, and do just this one more bit of pinching. Oh, my sainted aunt! I spoke as hearts do when heated in the chase and panting for cooling streams. It would have been plain to a far less astute mind than mine that this blighted bing had got me by the short hairs and was in a position to dictate tactics and strategy. Blackmail, of course, but the gentler sex loves blackmail. Not once, but on several occasions, has my Aunt Dahlia bent me to her will by threatening that if I didn't play ball, she would bar me from a table, thus dashing Anatole's lunches and dinners from my lips. Show me a delicately nurtured female, and I will show you a ruthless Napoleon of crime, prepared without turning a hair to put the screws on some unfortunate male whose services she happens to be in need of. There ought to be a law. It looks as if the dice are cast, I said reluctantly. They are. She reassured me. You're really adamant. I couldn't be more so. My heart bleeds for Plank, and I'm going to see justice done. Right ho, then. I'll have a crack at it. That's my good little man. The whole thing's so frightfully easy and simple. All you have to do is lift the thing off the dining room table and smuggle it over to Plank. Think how his face will light up when you walk in on him with it. My hero, I expect he'll say. And with a laugh, though silvery, grated on my ear like a squeaking slate pencil, she buzzed off. Chapter 10 Proceeding to my room and turning in between the sheets, I composed myself for sleep. But I didn't get a lot of it. What I did get was much disturbed by dreams of being chased across difficult country by sharks, some of them looking like Stiffy, some like Sir Watkin Bassett, and others like the dog Bartholomew. When Jeeves came shimmering in the next morning with my breakfast tray, I lost no time in supplying him with full information regarding the hero I found myself the toad under. You see the position, Jeeves, I concluded. When the loss of the thing is discovered and the hue and cry sets in, 
Who will be the immediate suspect? Worcester Bertram. My name in this house is already mud, and the men up top will never think of looking further for the guilty party. On the other hand, if I refuse to sit in, Stiffy will consider herself scorned, and we all know what happens when you scorn a woman. She'll tell Madeline Bassett that Gussie has been at the stake and kidney pie, and ruin and desolation will ensue. I see no way of beating the game. To my surprise, instead of raising an eyebrow, the customary eighth of an inch and saying, Most disturbing, sir, he came within an ace of smiling. That is to say, the left corner of his mouth quivered almost imperceptibly before returning to position one. You cannot accede to Miss Bing's request, sir. I took an astonished sip of coffee. I couldn't follow his train of thought. It seemed to me he couldn't have been listening. Well, if I don't, she'll squeal to the FBI. No, sir, for the lady will be forced to admit that it is physically impossible for you to carry out her wishes. The statuette is no longer at large. It has been placed in Sir Watkins' collection room behind a stout steel door. Good Lord, how do you know? I chanced to pass the dining room, sir, and inadvertently overheard a conversation between Sir Watkin and his lordship. Oh, please call him Spode. Very good, sir. Mr. Spode was observing to Sir Watkin that he had not at all liked the interest you displayed in the figurine at dinner last night. I was just giving Pop B the old salve in hopes of sweetening the atmosphere a bit. Precisely, sir. But your statement that the object was just the sort of thing Uncle Tom would like to have made a deep impression on Mr. Spode. Remembering the unfortunate episode of the cow creamer, which did so much to mar the pleasantness of your previous visit to Totley Towers, he informed Sir Watkin that he had revised his original view that you were here to attempt to lure Miss Bassett from Mr. Finknottle, and that he was now convinced that your motive in coming to the house had more to do with the figurine, and that you were planning to purloin it on Mr. Travers' behalf. Sir Watkin, who appeared much moved, appeared to accept the theory in toto, all the more readily because of an encounter which he said he had had with you in the early hours this morning. I nodded. Yes, we got together in the hall at, I suppose, about 1 a.m. I had gone down to see if I could get a bit of that steak and kidney pie. I quite understand, sir. It was an injudicious thing to do, if I may say so. But the claims of steak and kidney pie are, of course, paramount. It was immediately after this that Sir Watkin fell in with Mr. Spode's suggestion that the statuette be placed under lock and key in the collection room. I presume that it is there now, and when it is explained to Miss Bing that only by means of burglar's tools or a flask of trinitrotoluene could you obtain access to it, and that neither of these is in your possession, I'm sure the lady will see reason and recede from her position. Only the circumstances of my being in bed at the moment kept me from dancing a few carefree steps. You speak absolute sooth, Jeeves. This lets me out. Completely, sir. Perhaps you wouldn't mind going and explaining the position of affairs to Stiffy now. You can tell the story so much better than I could, and she ought to be given the lowdown as soon as possible. I don't know where she is at this time of day, but you'll find her messing about somewhere, no doubt. I saw Miss Bing in the garden with Mr. Pinker, sir. I think she was trying to prepare him for his approaching ordeal. Eh? If you recall, sir, owing to the temporary indisposition of the vicar, Mr. Pinker will be in sole charge of the school treat tomorrow, and he views the prospect with not unnatural qualms. 
There is a somewhat lawless element among the school children of Totley in the Wold, and he fears the worst. Well, tell Stiffy to take a couple of minutes off from the pep talk and listen to your communique. Very good, sir. He was absent quite a time, so long, in fact, that I was dressed when he returned. I saw Miss Bing, sir. And? She is still insistent that you restore the statuette to Mr. Plank. She's cuckoo. I can't get into the collection room. No, sir, but Miss Bing can. She informs me that not long ago Sir Watkin chanced to drop his key, and she picked it up and omitted to apprise him of it. Sir Watkin had another key made, but the original remains in Miss Bing's possession. I clutched the brow. You mean she could get into that room any time she feels like it? Precisely, sir. Indeed, she has just done so. And so saying, he fished the eyesore from an inner pocket and handed it to me. Miss Bing suggests you take the object to Mr. Plank after luncheon. In her droll way, she said, the meal, I quote her words, would put the necessary stuffing into you and nerve you for the... It is somewhat early, but shall I get you a little brandy, sir? Not a little, Jeeves. Fetch the bloody cask! I don't know how Emerald Stoker was, with brush and palette, never having seen any of her output, but she unquestionably had what it takes where cooking was concerned, and any householder would have been glad to sign her up for the duration. The lunch she provided was excellent, everything most toothsome, but with this ghastly commission of stiffies on the agenda paper, I had little appetite for her offerings. The brow was furrowed, the manner distraught, the stomach full of butterflies. Jeeves, I said, as he accompanied me to my car at the conclusion of the meal, speaking rather peevishly, perhaps, for I was not my usual self. Doesn't it strike you as odd that, with infant mortality so rife, a girl like Stiffy should have been permitted to survive into the early twenties? There's some mismanagement there. What's the tree I read about that does you in if you sit under it? The upas tree, sir. She's a female upas tree. It's not safe to come near her. Disaster on every side is what she strews. And another thing, it's all very well for her to say, glibly? Or airily, sir. The words are synonymous. It's all very well for her to say glibly or airily, take this blasted eye sort of plank. But how do I find him? I can't go rapping on every door in Hockley come Meston, saying, excuse me, are you plank? It'd be like looking for a needle in a haystack. A very colourful image, sir. I appreciate your difficulty. I would suggest that you proceed to the local post office and institute inquiries there. Post office officials invariably have information at their disposal as to the whereabouts of dwellers in the vicinity. He had not aired. Breaking the car in Hockley commenced in High Street, I found the post office was one of those shops you get in villages where, in addition to enjoying the postal facilities, you can purchase cigarettes, pipe tobacco, wool, lollipops, strings, socks, boots, overalls, picture postcards, and bottles containing yellow non-alcoholic drinks probably fizzy. In answer to my query, the old lady behind the counter told me I could find Plank up at the big house with the red shutters, about a half a mile further back from the road. She seemed a bit disappointed that the information was all I was after, and that I had no intention of buying a pair of socks or a bulb string, but she bore up philosophically and I toddled back to the car. I remember the house she had spoken of, having passed it on my way in. Imposing mansion with a lot of land, as plank I took it would be some sort of labourer on the estate. 
I pictured him as a sturdy, gnarled old fellow whose sailor son had brought home the eyesore from one of his voyages, and neither of them had had the foggiest that it was valuable. I'll put it on the mantelpiece, Dad, no doubt the son had said. It'll look good up there. To which the old gaffer had replied, Aye, lad, gormed if twon't look grandly on the mantelpiece. Or was that effect? I can't do the dialect, of course. So they had shoved it on the mantelpiece, and then along had come Sir Watkin Bassett with his smooth city ways, and made suckers out of parent and offspring. I reached the house and was about to knock on the door when there came bustling up an elderly gentleman with a square face, much tanned, as if he'd been sitting out in the sun quite a lot without his parasol. Oh, there you are, he said. Hope I haven't kept you waiting. We were having football practice and I lost track of time. Come in, my dear old fellow, come in. I need scarcely say that his exuberant welcome to one who, whatever his merits, was a total stranger, warmed my heart quite a good deal. It was with a feeling that his attitude did credit to Gloucestershire hospitality that I followed him through a hall liberally sprinkled with the heads of lions, leopards, gnus, and other fauna into a room with French windows opening on the front garden. He left me while he went off to fetch drinks, his first question having been, would I care for one for the tonsils, to which I had replied with considerable enthusiasm that I would. When he returned, he found me examining the photos on the wall. The one on which my eye was resting at the moment was a school football group, and it was not difficult to spot the identity of the juvenile delinquent holding the ball and sitting in the middle. You, I said. That's me, he replied. My last year at school, I skippered the side that season. That's old scrubby Willoughby sitting next to me. Fast wing, three-quarter, but never would learn to give the reverse pass. He wouldn't, I said, shocked. I hadn't the remotest idea what he was talking about, but he had said enough to show me that this Willoughby must have been a pretty dubious character. And when he went on to tell me that poor old Scrubby had died of cirrhosis of the liver in the federal melee states, I wasn't really surprised. I imagine these fellows who won't learn to give the reverse pass generally come to a fairly sticky end. Chap on my other side is Smiler Todd, prop forward. Prop forward, eh? And a very good one. Played for Cambridge later on. You fond of Rugger? I don't think I know him. Rugby football. Oh, oh no, I've never gone in for it. You haven't? No. Good God. I could see I had sunk pretty low in his estimation, but he was a host and managed to fight down the feeling of nausea with which my confession had afflicted him. I've always been mad keen on Rugger. I didn't get much of it after leaving school, and they stationed me in West Africa. Tried to teach the natives there the game, but had to give it up. Too many deaths, with the inevitable subsequent blood feuds. Retired now and settled down. I'm trying to make Hockley come mest in the best football village in these parts, and I will say for the lads that they're coming up nicely. What we need is a good prop forward, and I can't find one. But you don't want to hear all this. You want to know about my Brazilian expedition. Oh, have you been to Brazil? I seem to have said the wrong thing, as one so often does. He stared. Didn't you know I'd been to Brazil? Nobody tells me anything. I should have thought they'd have briefed you at the office. Seems silly to send a reporter all the way down here without telling him what they're sending him for. I'm pretty astute, and I saw there'd been a mix-up somewhere. 
Were you expecting a reporter? Of course I was. Aren't you from the Daily Express? Sorry, no. I thought you must be the chap who was coming to interview me about my Brazilian explorations. Oh, you're an explorer. Again, I'd said the wrong thing. He was plainly piqued. Who did you think I was? Does the name Plank mean nothing to you? Is your name Plank? Of course it is. What an odd coincidence, I said, intrigued. I'm looking for a character named Plank. Not you, somebody else. The bimbo I want is a sturdy tiller of the soil, probably gnarled with a sailor's son. As you have the same name as him, you'll probably be interested in the story I'm about to relate. I have here, I said producing the black amber thing, a whatnot. He gaped at it. Where did you get that? That's a bit of native sculpture I picked up on the Congo, and I sold it to Sir Watkin Bassett. I was amazed. You sold it to him? Why, certainly. Well, shiver my timbers! I was conscious of a Boy Scoutful glow. I like this plank, and I rejoiced that it was in my power to do him as good a turn as anyone had ever done. God bless Bertram Worcester. I felt he'd be saying in another couple of ticks. For the first time I was glad that Stiffy had sent me on this mission. Then I'll tell you what I said. If you'll just give me five pounds... I broke off. He looked at me with a cold, glassy stare, as no doubt he had looked at late lions, leopards, and gnus, whose remains were to be viewed on the walls of the outer hall. Fellows at the drones, who have tried to touch Ufi Prosser, the club millionaire, for a trifle, to see them through till next Wednesday, have described him to me as looking just like that. Oh, so that's it, he said, and even Pop Bassett could not have spoken more nastily. I've got your number now. I've met your sort all over the world. You won't get my five pounds. You won't get any five pounds, my man. You just sit there where you are and don't move. I'm going to call the police. That will not be necessary, sir, said a respectful voice. And Jeeves entered in through the French window.